Romans chapter 15, we got down through about verse 7 last time, finishing up the, uh, the thought of the strong and the weak and how that we're to receive them and uh, just, just to get our thoughts together. Wherefore, receive you one another as Christ also received us unto the glory of God. So as Christ received us, He brought us in all of our iniquity and our sin and our filthiness, our wretchedness. Christ came to us and, and that's the state that He brought us to Himself in. And he, he didn't lay any requirements on us. He didn't say you need to do this and clean up and do better and then come back and I'll save you. But while we were yet sinners, while we were in our sinful condition. There He saved us. And He brought us to Himself with, honest to God, a a love that is unconditional and unchanged. The love that God had towards us in bringing us to His Son. And so He tells us to accept one another as Christ brings a new person into the family as One is saved and delivered and Christ has cleansed them of their sin. Let us also accept one another in the family of Christ Jesus. And and this, as Christ received us to the glory of God. So this is God's glorious work that man could be made acceptable before Him. You think about how impossible that it is now. Here is man that is unjust that is sinful, that's wicked, and honest, He's that way in every facet of life. How far off from the commandments and from real righteousness that mankind is in the sight of God. And yet, God has through His... I mean, there's honest. There's no reason for God to be good to me. I never gave God any reason to be good to me. And yet He was. To His glory. That that when we look towards our salvation, when we look to where God has brought us from, what God has brought us into, there's no looking at ourselves because it's, it's grace. It's unmerited and unwarranted. But to the glory of God, we're a part of His family. We're made clean and pure through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that way, as God has drew us to Himself and showed that love upon us that was undeserved, He says, you do likewise as a church. So now to verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again rejoice, ye Gentiles, with His people. And again praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud Him, all ye people. And again Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he, shall, he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. I realize that's reading several verses there. But those quotes from the Old Testament, they go along with the thought. So let's start in aid and let's walk down through this. Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision. So he was a servant. The word means a public servant. He was a servant to the circumcision. That's that lineage of Abraham. And what was he doing? He was confirming the promises made unto the fathers. Now, in the Old Testament, there was promise made to Adam and Eve in the garden. And really, the promise was made to the serpent. He told the serpent that the seed of the woman's going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. So there was the announcement of God of the coming Son. And we see uh, pictures of that on through in Noah and in other places. But the, the real point where we see the specific promise start to be 
narrowed down and God's going to narrow it down over and over through the Old Testament is to Abraham. And there to Abraham was circumcision given and that was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and with his seed after him. And what was it a sign of? That the promised deliverance through Jesus Christ, he was going to be born through that lineage of people. Abraham's lineage would be the the means that Christ would be born into this world. And so Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises. So look at a couple places. In Luke chapter 1, Luke 1's a beautiful chapter, but you're going to have a couple of songs of glory, one by Mary named the Magnificat, and another by Zacharias in the temple. And listen, first let's look at Mary's. Just a little a verse or two out of hers. Luke 1, verse 54. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So Mary, by the illumination and moving of the Spirit of God, she's just been told that Jesus was going to be born through her. This would be the Son of God. And so she's come to Elizabeth's house The Spirit of God is moved. Mary's begin to magnify the Lord. And she says, The Lord's remembered His mercy and all of the promises that He made to Abraham and to His seed forever. She had an understanding that this son that she was going to bring forth was going to be the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. And the word promise, always remember this, in the New Testament when he speaks about the promises of God, he don't mean God saying, well, I'm going to do that later. But what the word means is an announcement. God is announcing what he's going... There's no question as to whether it's going to be accomplished or not when God makes a statement. God's announcing what he will do. So that's what he did to Abraham. He told Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. You can call it a promise. You can call it an announcement. But it was sure, certain, and steadfast. But Mary recognized this. And on down in the same chapter 1, verse 68, we're going to read a few verses here. But here's Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Remember, the angel spoke to him in the temple, told him this was going to happen. He had a hard time believing it, and the angel shut his mouth. said, you're not going to speak again until he's born. Well, when God opens His mouth, He praises God for the works that God's performed. And this is what He says in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He hath visited and redeemed His people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. As He spake by the mouth of His holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He sware to our father Abraham, that He would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. So Zacharias also, by the stirring of the Holy Spirit, recognizes that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham of all of that that came through the prophets and that this son Jesus was going to bring the deliverance of God that was promised all through the Old Testament. So Jesus was, as verse 8 says, a minister of the circumcision. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, a well-known scripture, for all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, amen, under the glory of God by us. Now He which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So all of the promise of God, all of the, the works of God, they're all yea in Christ. So Christ is the answer to the promises that God made to Abraham and to his seed. And it's not that it's going to be fulfilled in the future, 
but Christ is the literal fulfillment of the promises that God made in the Old Testament by the prophets and unto Abraham himself. So God has carried out. Jesus was the minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm. That means to stabilitate. So Jesus confirmed the promises. Not in this sense He said that they're going to be... He wasn't another prophet that just said these are going to happen and this is the truth. But He was that that stood the promises up and fulfilled them to the brim. So who should the Jew look to? To Jesus Christ. Not to another, not to something else in the future, not to another day, but Jesus, the fulfillment of the promise and all of the promises. Now if we believe the Bible, all the promises of God in Christ are yea. Now outside of Christ, there's no means to enjoy the promise or the goodness of God, but it's in Him. And so, verse 9, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now look at, again, over and over through this, we see this, and you start to get an idea of what a problem it was for Jews and Gentiles to be thought of as the same or equal in the family of God. And again, in Romans, he's going over it again. Jesus fulfilled the promise to the Jew, and yet also the Gentiles can glorify God through His mercy. So Jesus is the Savior of the Jew. Jesus is the Savior of the Gentile. They both are brought to redemption by the same Savior, the same gospel, and the same means. So that now if, if you take those two words, the literal meaning as Paul wrote that down, the Jew, the seed of Abraham, the Gentile, everybody else. So you could sum this up by saying that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now does that mean the world is going to be saved? We know that the entirety of the world, Jesus Himself and every prophet and everywhere else, it's, it's a small remnant, always a remnant, a small number, a few that are saved. But this is what He's saying in that regard, that Jesus is the only Savior that there is in the world. If man's going to be saved, Jesus is the only means for man to be saved, Jew or Gentile. So the Gentiles now in John chapter 10, verse 16, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So we're, Jesus is speaking here, and yet there's quotations from the Old Testament going on. He's speaking the words of the prophets. He's fulfilling them, if you'll have it. But what he's saying is, other sheep I have not of this fold. You could say, well, he's talking about the people that were standing there with him that day. You could say that. You could apply it that way. But I believe the application for us is here he's speaking to Jewish people and he says, uh, these are my sheep out of the Jew and yet there's others that are not of the Jewish nation that I'm going to bring in also. And there's going to be one fold and there's going to be one shepherd. And I, I've said this before here man would like to say that, well, that, that one way, one Savior, one fold, that is, uh, that's so exclusive. You're leaving out. You know, the world's, they're obsessed with diversity. And you're leaving out so many people by only saying there's one way. The world would like universalism where every way and every faith and 
Every belief will get you there and you'll be accepted. But the truth is now, man's looking at it with a backwards view. The truth is there was no way to come to God. There was no way to be acceptable. There was no escape from the wrath of God. There was no escape from hell. No way. See, man can't see that. Man does not believe that. But the truth is, there was no means for man to escape the judgment of God. The glorious thing is that God through Jesus made a way of escape that was never there before. So you can say, well, I don't like the one way. Well, the truth is without Jesus, there is no means of redemption or salvation for the whole world. Nobody's going to be saved without Jesus. Nobody's escaping hell without a Savior. Man's got a, he's got a backwards view in the flesh and he can't see the kingdom of God. Isn't that something? He can't see it except he be born again. Galatians chapter 3, in this fold now, he's going to make one fold. The Jew and the Gentile, they're going to come together in one fold. You've got the sheep drawing around the shepherd. Remember last time, that picture as, as they draw near the shepherd, they're drawing near to one another. They're drawing together. And so he's going to save one fold. Where in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So who are the heirs of the promise? Them that are in Christ. Those are the ones that are going to inherit the blessings of the promises of God through the Old Testament. And notice, this is what he's saying here in Galatians 3, that nothing in the flesh makes a difference either way in regard to the promise of God. The Jews said, well, because we're Jews. And they thought that they had a step above or an extra step that other people don't have. That thought's still prevalent today. That because of this, that, and the other, I've got an extra privilege, an extra whatever in the standing of God because I've done this, that, or the other in the flesh. But Paul's going to go on, and we tried to look there last Sunday morning. Paul's going to go on at the end and say, circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything with God but a new creature. So that the works of the flesh have no uh, to avail, means to have force or be competent or have strength. The works of the flesh do not matter. They avail nothing. They are powerless in the sight of Almighty God. You know what's going to boil down to? Whether we are in Christ or not. Works have nothing to do with the salvation that is delivered through the Lord Jesus Christ. What it boils down to now is Jesus and my standing with Him whether I'm a a good, moral, upright person that tries to please God in prayer and in word and in song and in deed and in morality, or whether I'm a Gentile that's lived my life in paganism and in every manner of sin that can be imagined. Man says there's no way that God is going to look at them the same way. That one is so much better and above the other. But God says they're equally sinful. And they equally need a Savior. And in Jesus, they're equally saved. And without Jesus, they're equally lost. That's a hard pill to swallow, ain't it? The Jews had a hard time swallowing that. And the religious church people 
have a hard time swallowing that as well because we've got to be better than everybody else. And the Jew thought that they had to be better than everybody else. So as Paul teaches this, they are following him everywhere he goes. And I believe literal, everywhere Paul went, preaching this gospel, they were following him and undercutting him, saying this man's teaching heresies, he's teaching lies, he's making this stuff up. There's no way any of this can be the truth. And Paul, in every letter, and Romans is no different, Paul's going to quote the Old Testament just so you know that I'm not making this up. Listen to where this is written. So in verse number 9, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name a quote from Psalm 18. The 18th Psalm he's quoting from. In verse number 10, a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, a quote from Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. See, that stuff like that in the Old Testament could be easily missed. If you know Psalm 117, that's the shortest chapter in the Bible. Praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise Him, all ye people. In the New Testament, we're given exactly what that meant. This salvation was going to reach farther than the little pocket of Jew in Israel. This salvation was going to reach to every nation, every tribe, every kindred, and every tongue under heaven. Not that they all inclusively, every individual was going to be saved, but out of every nation, every tribe, every tongue of people on the earth, there would be a number saved. And so one, one more time in verse 12 from Isaiah, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. So I, I think now as he, he could have quoted, he could have quoted many other scriptures. That's all through the Old Testament. But we've got we've got two from the Psalms. So the Psalms is part of that poetry literature in the middle portion of the Old Testament. We've got a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah, one of the major prophets from the prophecy section of the Old Testament. And we got one by Moses in Deuteronomy. Quotes from, you know, there, there was a crowd that, well, we, we don't believe any of that other stuff. We only believe Moses. Well, you know, I've never been interested in the others. I, I just like the poetry and the beauty of it. I don't like any of that old history stuff. I just like to hear the prophecies. Well, he's got a quote out of every one of them. Proving that this was the plan of God from the beginning. And he says, I'm not making this up. This was God's plan from the start. Now let me ask you this. How many places do we have to have in the Bible that says it before we believe it's true. How many places should it be said before I say I believe that is the truth? I mean, I, I agree with that. One, if he, God says it one time, then I ought to believe it. God says... Now, I'm, I'm going to give you an example. God says that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. How many times does God need to tell me that before I believe that? And yet it's repeated and it's shown through the Old Testament and into the New Testament that that, and it's stated. It's not stated in mystery. It's not shrouded in a parable that's hard to understand. He directly states that to me. Paul says, I'm not making this up. This is straight out of the Old Testament. 
You know where my belief ought to be? Based in and backed up by is the Bible. Whether Billy Graham or Pastor so-and-so or mom and pop or mam and pap, whether they believed it like that or not is immaterial. Our, Our faith ought to be established in what the Word of God says. And that's where Paul's teaching here is coming from. And he's got the quotes written down. He doesn't say go look in Moses, but he writes them down specifically for you to have right there as you're going through the book. This is out of the Old Testament. God already said this was the case. And so we've got Old and New Testament pointing to Jesus as the only hope that man has of salvation. And that is one of the least believed things in our world today. You know why that is? It's because that man cannot see the kingdom of God. That's why that that is so hard to believe to understand. It's not because God doesn't say it in a way that cannot be understood. The parables of Jesus, Matthew 13, things are said in such a way that we can understand what is being said and yet not understand what's being... Isn't that amazing? that I understand it, and yet I can't see the message of it. Man's blind. He's dead. God must. He must regenerate him before he'll ever be able to see the kingdom of God. So let's look now in 13. So he's proven this with the Old Testament. Jesus is the Savior of the Jew and the Gentile They're brought into the same family. And in Jesus, they're the family of God. They're only there by Jesus' merit and work. What they were had nothing to do with that. It's amazing we believe that for the Jew because we're not Jews. And well, the Jews know better than me. We all come the same way. But you come to our day and People think, well, I didn't do this, that, and the other. Therefore, I'm above so-and-so. Because they did live like that. And they did do these deeds. And they did sin these sins. It's no different than what we saw here as Paul's writing Romans. So we come to verse 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So if you remember back up, and I realize it's been a little while since we looked there, but up in the beginning of this chapter, in verse 5, now the God of patience and consolation. So the God of cheerful endurance and imploration or solace. Now we come down to 13 and He's the God of hope, expectation and confidence. Is God a a God? And I don't mean that wrong. But let's say it this way. Since He is God, in control of, and supremely reigning over all things, is He a God that I can have confidence in? Can I have confidence that what God says is set in stone and cannot be undone. Can I have confidence that what God promises through His Word, He will carry that out? Absolutely. And the God of confidence, the God of expectation, fill you with all joy and peace. So joy and peace, not a a happy... The world wants you to be happy. And today we're happy and tomorrow we're sad. 
But the joy here that's referred to is an inward joy and rejoicing of the soul. Now how can the soul rejoice? You think about the song, It is well with my soul. And if you read that, there's a man that either on top of the mountain or drowning in sorrow. Now that's in the flesh. He's doing well. He's enjoying life. And the next minute he's tossed by the waves of sorrow and sadness on the sea. And yet, though the conditions of the flesh vary, even so it is well. How can he say that? He's got a God that he has confidence in. That no matter what I go through, no matter what I endure, no matter what uh, sorrows that lays on my flesh, God's made promise and I have confidence in what God has said to me and I know that He is going to carry that out. He's going to accomplish what He's promised. And I can have joy and rejoice in that and I can have peace in the midst of that, to lay my head down and rest knowing that the God of confidence, the God of expectation, has promised this to be the case. You know, in, in this day, and I, I, realize, I realize we go through things. Some go through much things today. But now we're talking about a day here that they were likely to cast you in prison, to beat the skin off of your back, and then fillet you alive for confessing and believing in the Lord Jesus. Not for breaking some law, not for being a murderer. Today, we can't even put somebody to sleep that's a murderer because it's inhumane. In this day... Because people confessed Jesus, they were beating and lashing them and filleting them and, and putting them in burning oil and crucifying them and setting them on fire for their, not, not for some deed, but for their confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to tell you it'd be hard for me to believe. You think about it now in the flesh. Here's a God that saved us, that we believe loves us, and He's going to let them set me on fire? If your happiness is in the flesh, then it's all gone at that point. And that's what they were hoping for. These men, they were hoping that through punishing and torturing the flesh, they could get them to go back on their confession to recant what they were saying. We're going to take away your happiness. We're going to take away your health. And we'll even take away your life if you do not recant the profession of the Lord Jesus. In the flesh, that might work. But you know, they had that, they had that joy inwardly that though they suffer and though they endure, that God would deliver them. So if you think about this in John chapter 14, so Jesus is shut in with His disciples here up to the crucifixion in John. And He's in the upper room with them and He's about to go this night. He's going to trial the next day, really the same day in the way they kept time. But the next morning, He's going to be going to the cross. So here He is with His disciples and He's preparing them for what they're about to watch. The man that they believe to be the Son of God, the Deliverer, the Messiah, He's about to go and be beaten beyond recognition as a man. And then He's going to be nailed to a cross and he's going to die there in weakness. It's going to be a, you're going to go through it. And so he says in John 14, 
verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. Something worth thinking about there. Jesus, in the chapter before, His heart was heavy and troubling Him. He had one with Him that was going to betray Him. The son of perdition was there in the room with His disciples. He was going to be betrayed and the weight of this suffering was coming. The Bible says His heart was troubled. And yet, we come to 14 and Jesus says to you, let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to bear the trouble. I'm going to bear the sin. Now you have peace in the work that I'm going to accomplish. You believe in God. You believe in God that brought him out of Egypt. You believe that he parted the Red Sea. You believe that he drowned the Egyptians there. If you believe in God, then believe what I'm telling you. That's what the Lord's saying. Have peace in my words. I'm going away, but it's for your good. It's important that I go away. He's going to say all of this in the same discourse in the upper room. It's expedient that I go away. And I'll get the Father to send back the Comforter that He may abide with you. You're going to see this. It's going to be hard to see. It's going to attack your belief and trust in me to see me suffer this. But know that what I'm doing is for your good. On the day of Pentecost, they could see that. But before that, they didn't have all of that understanding there. And so... In John 14, verse 26, But the Comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in My name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Why and how can the heart not be troubled nor be afraid because Christ has imparted His peace unto us. That's what He says, my peace I leave. And so the peace, and this goes against the thinking of man, it's really not what man wants, but the peace that Jesus had between Him and the Father. Jesus was not despised of the Father. The Father was not angry at Jesus. But actually it was the other way around. The Father said, This is My Son in whom I'm well pleased. My beloved Son. And so that peace between Jesus and the Father, where there was no sin, there was no separation, there was no uh, anger, there was no difference between them. Jesus, through His sacrifice, has imparted that peace to His church so that we are in Christ and in Christ we have the same relationship with a Father that He has. So that He He has cleansed us, He's made us to be righteous, He's imparted unto us His peace and in Him we can come to the Father not in fear, Not to Mount Sinai where sin was in the way and they exceedingly feared and quaked. But we come to the Father of mercy and of love through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can come boldly. Not boldly in in confidence of the flesh or in myself but boldly knowing this that as He has already accepted Jesus I'm accepted in Him. Not waiting to be accepted. But as we are in Jesus today, we are accepted with the Father in Him. So what kind of peace do we have? We've got a peace that cannot be taken away. That you may abound in hope. So the God of hope is making us to abound in hope. So what's happened? God has delivered us. God has made us accepted in the Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this God of hope, this God of confidence, this God that everything He says 
is trustworthy and true and always comes to pass, has redeemed us, given us the earnest of the Spirit, filled us with His peace and joy and love, and through this work that He's done, now I am abounding in confidence. So that through the work of God, we can have all confidence in Christ that if we lay down our life today, if our life is taken from us today, that with the Father in Christ we'll be in the world to come. That if He comes back in wrath today to destroy the world and bring judgment, we have confidence. We're not afraid, but we have confidence in Jesus that we're accepted. So through this work of God, we are abounding in hope through This hope is not blind hope. I've heard it said this way. You need to believe harder. If you're not confident, then what you need to do is believe harder and by you believing harder, you'll become more confident in God. Is that the way the Bible teaches that I obtain confidence before God? That is a confidence that hinges on how much I believe. Do you see that? Silly. That's silly thinking. But the Bible says that we abound in hope through the channel of an act. The means that I abound in hope is through the power, the dunamis, miraculous power. The miraculous power of the Holy Ghost of to originate. The point of origin. So where does my hope, my confidence in salvation, where does that originate in? And really, the whole verse originates here. If I have hope, if I have joy, if I have peace, that comes to me through. So God is passing this down to me because I didn't have it before. And if I don't have it, it's going to have to come from another source. This is a silly picture, but if I need sugar to make some cookies and I don't have sugar in my house then I'm not going to open the cabinet enough and it appear. I'm going to have to go to a place that has it and purchase it or get some in order for me to have it in my house. Well, here we are. We've got no hope. We've got no peace. We're guilty of sin and we're under the wrath of God. We have no righteousness in our house. So don't think you're going to open her up enough and eventually it's going to appear in there. But there's got to be a source for this. If I'm going to have righteousness that I do not have, I'm going to have to get it from somewhere. That comes from God the Father. The means that it's possible for me to have it and God still be just is the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So without Jesus then, I can't be justified because I've got no payment for my sin. Do you see that? So Jesus is necessary. But the Spirit is necessary as well because He is the channel that all of this stuff reaches me. It passes from God through the sacrifice of Jesus and it reaches me by the working of the Spirit of God. And so it's through the Spirit that we have this confidence, this hope, and this trust. And outside of the Spirit, you're hoping to open your cabinet tomorrow and it magically appear in there. Now if somebody, really, if somebody did that, 
you'd say that person is a lunatic. Because we know that that is not how things work. And yet man is hoping for righteousness one day by simply opening an empty cupboard and thinking it's going to be there. Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost, He's the Savior of the world. He's the the atonement for our sins. He's the righteousness that is passed unto us. And we receive that through the Spirit so that if you don't have the Spirit, then you've missed out on everything else. You see that? You see the importance of that? That's right. We, we've missed all of it. That's right. All I need. And so verse 14, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. So Paul here is speaking to the church. I'm persuaded, so I'm convinced. How can Paul be convinced? You know, you, you, can, you can say a lot of things and be totally wrong and be proven that way. But you know that, that the Holy Spirit bears witness to, you can see that and, and amen that and never be ashamed because He's faithful and true. And so Paul's got confidence that ye are full of goodness. So virtue... Where did this virtue come from? Filled with all knowledge. And where did the knowledge come from? Was that in them? Were they full of virtue and knowledge on their own? Before God brought them in? Or was this something received from another source again? So Paul says, I'm persuaded. So Colossians chapter 1 verse 8, Who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this, also, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul had received word of the church at Colossae and of their deeds and of their faith and of their profession that they had made. And Paul says, from that time forward, I prayed that God would continue to pump you full of His wisdom, of His knowledge, of spiritual understanding that God would, by the Holy Ghost, increase you, that your work might increase, that your labor might increase. You see how this works? It's, it's all tied together. That God, by the Spirit, increases my knowledge as I grow in knowledge now, and God is writing that on the tables of my heart. My life is transformed by that. You know why people die lost? My people are destroyed because they have no knowledge. And so Peter, if you look in first and second Peter, the first chapter, you see he talks about the knowledge. That you grow in knowledge. See, we're transformed, as he says in Romans 12, we are transformed by the renewing and the renovation of our mind. What changes our mind? The Word of God and the Holy Ghost. So the church now, who is bought by Jesus, indwelled by the Spirit, and given knowledge from on high, Paul says, I'm aware of this, 
and that you're able to admonish one another, to put in mind, to caution, or to reprove gently. Now there is something that man absolutely despises. To caution, to reprove gently, or to put in mind. But you know, God put in the church what's required for the daily life of the church. God put in the church and in the members that He saved the means to reprove and to admonish. In Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider one another to provoke one another unto love and to good works. God's put in the church the the encouragement, the strength, the help, the admonishing, the correcting, the understanding, so that whatever arises, the church has within it the means to take care of the problem. We'll follow the Word of God and the prescription of that Word. God has provided all things for us. But that leaves us in a place now, not where we're self-sufficient and acting on our own power and ability, but we are at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ looking unto Him and praying unto Him. Paul's praying to God that God would strengthen the church. And so the church today is, should, be, should be praying unto God that we could grow in knowledge and in understanding of the truth. And if I ever get to the place that I know it and I know it all, then I'm in a, I'm in a bad, bad place. Well, I can never, I'll never believe and I, my mind will never be changed. That's a, that's a dangerous place to be. But by God's grace we pray, Lord, by Your Spirit, lead us and guide us into the truth. Help us to grow in knowledge and in understanding. Pull down the strongholds of tradition and let us to grow in the knowledge of the truth.